All right, Father, thank you. Uh, we're grateful again to be able to discuss the things that come out of your word. And we pray, Father, that you would help us in this time to understand things that are difficult to understand and that many have questions about. Father, we need your spirit to teach us, and we pray that he would. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Corinthians 10.5 uh, says we are destroying arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I'm sorry I thought that all fit, but apparently it did not. Um, where are we starting with this? When we talk about the problem of evil in the world, we've got to start by doing two things, and we've got to have some definitions. Uh, we need to know who God is, and we need to know what evil is. So let's, let's start there. Who is God? We're not going to spend a lot of time on this point, because given who I am and who most of you are, um, and where we happen to be in having this discussion, it should be pretty self-evident. We are not answering the question about evil in the world by appealing to some generic God, because there is no such thing as a generic God. This is the problem that comes into these kinds of discussions very often, because you have people who want to try to defend this general idea of theism, and there is no such thing as a general theism. There is the one triune God of Scripture. He is the true God. He is the only God. He is the God who has revealed himself. And so when I refer to God, this is the God I'm speaking of, the triune God of the Bible. For the sake of our conversation today, that will be presupposed. I'll not be considering the problem of evil from the perspective of some generic thing that others may want to call God. As we've said, there is no such thing. We begin here because this, the triune God of Scripture, is the God who has revealed himself. So if we're going to understand the world around us, we have to understand what this God, the only true God, has said about this. This is important because when we critique, as we will, unsatisfactory answers to the problem of evil will be doing so from the foundation of the triune God of Scripture. So that's where we begin. We begin as the Bible does, which doesn't argue about the existence of God, doesn't try to prove the existence of God. It simply says, in the beginning, God. That's where we're starting. That's our beginning point. Now, what is evil? Well, there is natural evil. Tornadoes, earthquakes, tidal waves, hurricanes, floods, diseases, and deformity. And there is human evil. Intentional evil. Violence, murder, war, abuse, lies, theft. And there is non-intentional. Death itself. Accidental injury car, plane, train accidents, medical mishaps. These are unintentional, but they're just as evil. So, 
what's the problem that we're dealing with then? Having defined God, having defined evil, how is the problem set forth for us? I suppose we should begin by stating that the problem of evil is not something that modern-day philosophers have come up with. It is an ancient problem. Uh, we can go back as far as Epicurus, who says God either wishes to take away evils and is unable, or he is unable and unwilling, or he is neither willing nor able. And then he tries to work out each possibility. If God is willing and unable, he is feeble, which is not in accordance with the character of God. Now, he was a pagan, and even he knew this. If he is able and unwilling, he is envious, which in his language meant evil, which is equally at variance with God. If he is neither willing nor able, he is both envious, meaning evil, and feeble, and therefore not God. If he is both willing and able, which alone is suitable to God, from what source then are evils? Or why does he not remove them? To simplify all of this, there is evil, the argument goes, therefore there can be no God. How can a all-good all-powerful God exists if evil also exists. If he is good, he doesn't want there to be evil. And if he's all-powerful, he can do something about it. But there is evil. That is the problem. The problem of evil is often flashed before Christians as a kind of trump card, one not um, need, it, need stated as accurately as Epicurus in order to wield the argument in an intimidating way. There is evil, and therefore there is no God, but there's obviously much more to be said because that statement in itself is not true. So how do we get around the conclusion well, there are a number of ways people have tried to do this. There are a host of inadequate answers. Let me just run through a few of them with you. The first is atheism. And this is you know, pretty much the crux of, of the issue. The atheist would say, well, if God is like this and if God is like that, but the world is like it is, then God can't exist. If God is all-powerful, if God is all-benevolent, but there is evil in the world, and that God must not exist. Now, atheists are not burdened with attempts to explain evil in relationship to God. They just kind of short-circuit the argument. Evil just exists in a godless world. No more problem. In a godless world, I would argue, you can't even have anything called evil. For the atheist, obviously, because his position contradicts reality, this is wishful thinking. 
the problem does not vanish. It simply appears from a different direction. The atheist has a problem of his own when it comes to evil, but the problem appears not in regard to the presence of evil, but the very existence of evil. If the world is nothing but matter, where does, how do you have any idea of evil or good or any value statements at all? So, that's one answer. The atheist just says, well, there's no God. Another answer has been that God is finite. God is not to blame for evil. God has nothing to do with evil. This is the view that although God may want to do something about it, he is powerless to do so. This was popularized, if you'll remember, decades ago. Uh, by a book by a rabbi, Harold Kushner. And he wrote a book called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. His young son had tragically died of a rare disease, and Kushner concluded that God was unable to interfere with the laws of nature and with the free will of human beings. That was his explanation for why bad things happen to good people. Now, of course, I would argue that bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things happen to us. We're not good. Nobody's good. But in the context of our discussion, I would remind you of our definition of God. The foundation of our thinking as we seek to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ is the triune God revealed in Scripture. That God is not unable to do anything. The God who created the universe, ex nihilo, out of nothing, and the God who gave sight to the blind and made the lame to dance, and most of all, the God who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead is perfectly capable of preventing evil if he chooses to do so. Some would say, God exists, but he's evil. That's one attempt at dealing with the problem. God is not omnibenevolent. Perhaps God is simply not good. Now, of course, as we've been saying, we begin from the foundation of the triune God of Scripture. Since the triune God of Scripture is both omnipotent and omniscient, he cannot produce evil through some accident. Moreover, since God is omniscient, God knows what is good, and he knows what will produce his desired outcomes. In fact, the good, as Scripture defines it, is the very character of God. God is the definition of what is good. So to say that, well, maybe God's just evil, that doesn't work. That's an inadequate answer. Some just wanted to deny evil. Uh, one way to dispense with the problem of evil is to dispense with evil itself. And you see this in Eastern philosophies, pantheism, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, assorted New Age worldviews, uh, Christian science. Uh, these things say that, that all is ultimately divine, and since that is true, 
evil is not real. It's only a problem of perception. Well, you can't get there from the triune God of Scripture. Consider this 6th century Buddhist poem. If you want to get to the plain truth, be not concerned with right and wrong. The conflict between right and wrong is a sickness of the mind. Now that poem is just full of self-contradictions. There's no right or wrong, but I'm going to write a poem to tell you what is right. Because that's what the poem's trying to do. It's trying to speak truth, trying to tell you what is right and what is wrong, even as it claims that there is no right or wrong. Well, one of the ways that you understand something to be false and in error is if it ends up contradicting itself. That's certainly the problem when we come to a denial of evil. For us, all we need to do is to turn to Genesis chapter 3, and we see that evil is a real thing, and that it, 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 it comprises uh, the work of God in dealing with, uh, with evil throughout the, the rest of the entire Scripture until you get to the end of Revelation when it's finally dealt with. One other way of uh, denying uh, or dealing with the problem of evil is the idea of karma and reincarnation. The evils of this life cannot be justified if we have only one life to live. And so people will come back again and again and again in order to deal with the evil that they have committed in their previous lives. Can you think of a problem with this? Every time you come back, you're just committing more evil. Right? So where do we get off this merry-go-round? Well, these are inadequate answers. We want to find out what the Scripture says today. And so we want to find a biblical understanding of evil. These things don't work. Atheism doesn't work. A finite understanding of God doesn't work. A morally impaired God doesn't work. A world without evil doesn't work. And this idea of karma and reincarnation doesn't work. What does work? We have a biblical view of evil that is given to us in the Scripture. And it's rooted in three themes, which really are the primary themes throughout the entire Bible. And those are the themes of creation, and we'll, then we'll talk about the fall, and then we'll talk about redemption. Unlike Eastern religions or atheism, both of which lack the doctrine of creation, the Bible affirms that God created the universe according to his wisdom according to his own will and then he pronounced it good from that several elements stand out which help us as we seek to understand the problem of evil one is that the universe and humans are objectively valuable to God. We are created by Him in His image, and when He created us, He declared us and all creation to be good. Secondly, 
the universe has a structure and a purpose since it was created and is sustained by a personal moral God. That only comes out of a biblical understanding. God gave humans moral responsibility and instructed them concerning how to live. All of these things are true of creation. You see them in the first two chapters of Genesis. The obvious question that all this leads to is, what happened? Because <laughs> that's not the world we're living in. Well, what happened is the fall. The doctrine of the fall explains our present condition and gives hope for redemption, both now and in the future. The specific theological concept of the fall is unique to Scripture and significant in our understanding of the problem of evil. No other worldview explains our condition in light of a space-time defect from the original intent of the Creator. Now, there are a number of elements that help us here as we're looking at the fall. First, it tells us that evil is not intrinsic to human nature or the universe. How do we know this? We know this because Adam and Eve were created, and prior to the fall, God declared that creation to be good. And when we get to the other end of the spectrum, and we get to the new heavens and the new earth, sin will be dealt with. It will no longer be an issue for us. So sin and evil are not intrinsic to humanity. This is why Jesus could be fully human, though never sinning. So, that's the first thing. The second way that the fall helps us to understand evil is by giving us hope. The discontinuity between the original humanity and fallen humanity means that humanity now stand, as it stands right now, has hope for recovery. Man is naturally good and historically and presently fallen, sinful, and depraved, which means, given the God, triune God of Scripture, that can be reversed. And that's what happens in God's work of redemption. He's bringing us back to the garden. You read Revelation 21 and 22 in the new heavens and the new earth, and you, it would be hard to miss that. Right? The tree of, good knowledge, of, of the knowledge of good and evil is there. And, and, and you know, the rivers are there. And all of these themes that you find in the garden are now present in the new heavens and the new earth. God is bringing us back. Although where we are going is going to be even more glorious. A third way that the fall helps us in regard to understanding evil is that it gives us a basis for opposing evil. If the abnormality that results in moral and natural evil is rooted in the fall, then we have a philosophical basis for opposing all manner of evil without opposing God himself. Because God 
in his work of redemption has, so to speak, recruited us to oppose the evil that is in the world. Which is why Leviticus 19 talks to us about being holy as God is holy. Fourth, we have a basis for an objective moral order. Because of the way, because of creation and then the fall, we see the Christian able to affirm the reality of a moral order based on the character and commands of an absolutely good God. We have a basis to stand and declare this is evil and this is good. Whereas the atheist, for instance, does not. He has no foundation for that because all there is is material. All there is is substance. And you don't get value and you don't get morality out of that. So, there's creation and then there's the fall and then there is redemption. We are not beyond reclamation. This subject is so vast. <laughs> we could spend so much time on it. But we can sketch God's strategy to accomplish His design in a broken world by saying this, God has not left the world to itself. While it's broken, it is not ruined beyond repair. In fact, the whole work of redemption that God is involved in is a declaration that the world can be fixed and that God is about the business of doing that Immediately after the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, God promised redemption through the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. That's the gospel. And that promise of redemption, that promise of reclamation, continues throughout the Scripture where God continues to reveal Himself through nature, through the prophets, through the providential working of His particular people, Israel. It culminates in the incarnation of Jesus Christ Himself, an event that makes possible the redemption of individuals and cultures and every area of life. So, keep this in mind. You can read it for yourself. There is purpose in creation. There is purpose in the fall. There is purpose in redemption. That's very important to our understanding of the problem of evil. Now, let's examine the problem itself. Let's restate it if, if we've forgotten. If God is omnipotent and omniscient and God is also omnibenevolent, that is, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, how then can there be evil in the world? There has to be a way 
in which these things are made consistent. That God remains omnipotent and omniscient. He remains omnibenevolent. And we recognize the existence of objective evil in the world. One of the things that we need to recognize as we're discussing issues like this is that there is often a wide gap between scholars and philosophers on the one hand and public apologists on the other. That seems to be the case whether you're talking about apologists for atheism or Roman Catholicism or anything really. You go onto the internet and you'll see all kinds of arguments being used by internet apologists which no reputable scholar or philosopher would come close to. They would stay away from it with a 10-foot pole because they understand it doesn't work. Just to give you an example, we'll put it this in another context. You will still find Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox apologists trying to argue that the veneration of images is something that extends back to the earliest days of the church. No scholar would try to make that argument, whether Roman Catholic or not, because they realize that all of the evidence goes in the other direction. So it is with the gap between scholars and what we might refer to as lay apologists. Uh, these people you'll come across doing various debates or on the internet. Very few philosophers have advanced the argument from evil in this form in many decades because they've recognized the obvious nature of its failures. I'll only summarize some basic points here. We've got a series of false assumptions. The argument assumes that God can prevent any evil since God can do absolutely anything. And that, secondly, there is never a sufficient reason for God to allow evil. But those premises themselves are extremely problematic. So you've got false assumptions, God's out, flowing out of God's omnipotence, his power, and his purposes. The first is that God can do absolutely anything. That may sound good, but it's a false premise, and I'll tell you why. The argument exhibits a misunderstanding of what we mean when we speak of God's omnipotence. Here's another example of scholars understanding what your typical internet atheist does not. One of the reasons philosophers no longer use this argument is because they recognize that Christianity doesn't actually teach that God can do absolutely anything. We've all heard that silly question that's supposed to stop every Christian in their tracks. Can God make a rock too big for him to lift? Only silly internet atheists would go down that road because good, responsible philosophers understand that it is based on a caricature of true Christianity. The response to that silliness is as simple as it is ancient. And the answer is no. God cannot create a rock too big for him to lift because God doesn't do absurd things. God cannot act against his own character. 
And one aspect of God's character is that he is rational, and so he does not do the irrational. When we speak of God's omnipotence, we're using shorthand. When we say that God can do anything, we're not speaking in absolute terms. After all, Scripture itself clearly says that there are things that God cannot do. He cannot lie, for instance. God is not a man that he can lie. He will not go against his own character. So in regard to the problem of evil, one answer is that it may be that God can only bring about certain good by letting some evils exist, and that God therefore cannot do absolutely anything because he has a purpose in mind. We can see this, for instance, in the big picture of redemption itself. Redemption is an absolute good. But what must have occurred in order for redemption to occur? Sin. The fall. So God determined that something bad should happen in order that something good also happen. In this case, that being the glorification of the totality of who God is, both in His justice and in His mercy. Another false assumption has to do with God's purposes. Some will say that there is never a sufficient reason for God to ordain or allow evil. Never. This is how we come to a logical understanding of all of these things. There is clearly sufficient reason for God to allow or ordain evil because He has. And it is no different than what we experience in our own small human lives. I hate going to the dentist. It is an evil. Somebody else's fingers in my mouth and they're poking me and prodding me with sharp things. But there is a sufficient reason for putting myself through that. Now, if it's that easy to come up with a sufficient reason for evil in our lives, and we could come up with a host of others, right? Go spank your children. Well, all right, that's an evil, but it's for a good purpose. Certainly, we give God the same leeway. There is, in all of this, a missing proposition that fixes it as far as the Christian worldview is concerned. And that is this, that God has a morally sufficient reason for ordaining or allowing evil. So you could take those, all those premises that we've spoken about. Premise one, God is omniscient and omnipotent. Premise two, God is omnibenevolent. And you do not end up at the third at the conclusion, which is supposedly that God doesn't exist, because there is another premise that we add to the formula, 
And it is that God has a morally sufficient reason for the existence of evil. Even atheist philosophers understand that logically and philosophically, the problem of evil really isn't a problem at all, although they remain reticent to give it up. They're still trying to find ways to use it, even though they've given up on the traditional classical formulation. Uh, this is Michael Martin. Uh, Michael Martin, until his death in 2015, was widely considered to be the preeminent American atheist philosopher. He was a professor at Boston University and the author of many books, including one titled Atheism, A Philosophical Justification. In that particular book, he wrote an entire chapter trying to salvage this argument. He titled the chapter, The Argument from Evil. And although he tries to salvage the argument, he doesn't try very hard. The entire chapter is less than 30 pages, which normally for a professional philosopher is barely getting started. But by the time one finishes the chapter, one understands why the chapter is so brief. Martin simply has nothing to work with, and he knew it. In fact, he gives the whole game away. At the very beginning of the chapter, I believe on the second page of the chapter, he reveals why other atheistic philosophers have given up on the argument. And he admits that this argument does not work unless one is using it to argue against a caricature of who God is. Once you start arguing against the triune God of the Bible, this argument collapses. The traditional argument from evil does not succeed if either God has, one, a morally sufficient reason to, to, uh, to allow it, or two, it is logically necessary. Both of those things are true in the Christian worldview. So what you find in the old days are atheist philosophers arguing against a God that doesn't exist. When they finally could do that no more, you end up with what Martin is saying. If one gets specific about this God, if, he, if, if one qualifies his attributes as the Scripture does, and as we've already discussed, and if one brings the idea of purpose into the equation, then the flaws in the argument for evil overcome it. They become obvious, and the argument goes nowhere. So Martin admitted that the argument from the existence of evil does not exist. That you can't argue for the lack of a God through the existence of evil. Now at this point, he's done as far as this argument is concerned. As I say, he goes on for almost 30 pages trying to rescue the argument, but he's pretty much given up the game with this admission. The rest of his argument, and what he does to try to save the argument, is taken from another philosopher named William Rowe, and it's referred to as the empirical argument from evil, which means that he's given up on logic and is simply arguing from experience. Now, it's a two-part argument. 
The argument boils down to this. Part one, I don't like the world as it is. That's about as far as he can go because he's an atheist and he can't really argue for the objective existence of evil. All he's left with is I don't like the way things are. The second part of his argument is this. Why? There is no actual argument to be made. So, in all of this, we don't want to just set the problem of evil aside. Because although there is not a logical problem of evil, it is still a problem. But it's a different kind of problem. There is a real problem of evil. And I want to kind of piggyback off of Rose's argument. We might call it the argument from emotionalism. And I don't want to run away from that too quickly. The real problem of evil and the real problem of emotion. I've tried to make the case that in actuality there is no so-called problem of evil. Not when it comes to logic, not when it comes to the revelation of God. The scripture gives us a basis for understanding how the God of the Bible can exist at the same time evil exists. Creation, the fall, redemption, the nature of God, all of that which we've spoken about. When we understand these things, there is no problem of evil as the challengers to Christianity want to set it forth. There's no contradiction between a, an all-good, all-powerful God and the existence of evil. But that doesn't mean that a problem of evil does not exist in another sense. There is a sense in which Roe, who argued, I don't like the world as it is, wah, was on to something. Because the problem of evil is an experiential problem. It is an emotional problem. Evil is real, and we feel it. It's a real problem in that sense. We're faced with it when we see soldiers return from war with their bodies shredded and limbs missing. We're faced with it when a child dies. We're faced with it when a woman is raped. We're faced with it when hurricanes and tsunamis wipe out hundreds or thousands of people at once and all of the cold, sound, logical arguments we can muster don't overcome the experience of the problem of evil. There is something wrong, and we know that there is something wrong. So, what's the answer? What is the answer to that problem of evil? You can guess. Jesus. Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, that's the answer. The cross and the resurrection are the final arguments. They provide us with the last word because as we look to that hill outside the ancient city of Jerusalem and then to the tomb at which the stone had been rolled away, what are we seeing? We're seeing the destruction of evil. 
It hasn't happened yet, but it has begun. The apex of sacrificial love was displayed through the physical and mental and spiritual suffering of Jesus Christ on behalf of those who were his enemies. No greater act of love has ever been demonstrated, nor will ever be so. I have tried to make the case for the reliability of the texts that report this event and for the matchless character of Christ. That's what the ministry of the Word is. This Word is reliable, and this Word reveals who Jesus is. Yet without human rebellion against God, God's own unparalleled work of reconciliation in Christ could never have occurred. It's why when you want to talk about evil, and we want to list all of these things, as I just did a moment ago, that, that we all consider to be evil. If you want to talk about the most evil thing that has ever happened in the history of the world, you look to the cross. Every other evil that occurs to human beings occurs to sinners. The evil that took place on the cross came upon one who knew no sin. And yet, you look at Acts chapter 2 in Peter's Pentecost sermon, you look at Acts chapter 4, as the church is gathered together for prayer, and what is repeated over and over? You, O Lord, predestined this. God brought it about. Go back to Isaiah 53. Jesus was crushed. Who crushed him? His Father crushed him. Scripture tells us very clearly that the final plan was set in place from the beginning when it refers to Christ as the Lamb who is slain from the creation of the world. And there is no other worldview that teaches that God Almighty humbled Himself in order to redeem His sinful creatures through His own suffering and death. No other worldview endorses the idea that the supreme reality was impaled by human hands for the sake of lost souls. No founder of any other philosophy or religion ever cried out in sacrificial death saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God in Christ deals with with evil. Many impugn God's allowance of evil by claiming that God is far removed from our earthly distresses. He is not, and He's proved that in Christ. No other God bears the scars of rejection and betrayal and humiliation. Jesus Christ knows our pain inside out. Jesus Christ knows evil because he was the recipient of the greatest evil in the history of the world. And the gospel declares that God not only sympathizes with us, but he sympathizes with us through Christ. Jesus bore our sins. Jesus shared our sorrows. And while many evils in this world of pain are experienced 
day after day after day, the greatest evil has been explained to us. But the death of Christ wasn't the end from the earliest sermons in the book of Acts to the epistles through to Revelation. The proclamation of the gospel declares that Jesus not only died, but he rose again. Evil could not hold him. The resurrection of Christ opens up a future of hope for every believer. That's why Paul proclaims, what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The psalmist cries out, My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? The answer is, not forever. There is an end to the evil of this world because of Christ. The trumpet is going to sound and the dead in Christ are going to be raised imperishable and we are going to be changed. And sin will be dealt with and there will be no more crying or mourning or pain or death because death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our victory. And this is the response to the problem of evil. The strongest response to the problem of evil that is available to erring and aching mortals here east of Eden is Jesus. Well, let's talk about this a little bit if anyone would like to do that. I'll wait. It always takes a few seconds. So. If nobody has any questions or comments, that's fine too. Okay. Thanks for staying around then. Appreciate it. I hope this was helpful. Um, thank you. Um, well, let's pray and thank the Lord that we have a hope to look forward to. And this world of evil will be no more. Father, We've spoken about a lot of things here this afternoon. Most of all, we've spoken about you. What you have done and what you are doing and what you will do. We have a promise. We have in the Scripture not only an explanation, but a promise. And we thank you, Father, for that promise, for that hope which is ours that the day will come when everything will be put right. That because Christ has crushed the head of the serpent on the cross, we have a future and a hope. And that future includes a time when 
Sin will be no more. Death and mourning will be no more. Evil itself will be no more. Thank you for it, Father. May we live in the expectation of that day. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Thanks for staying.